welcome to Bible Banter. <laughs> welcome. Uh, we got Luke, we got myself, and we are uh, we are making like a little sandwich here. And right there in the middle is Nathaniel Bickford, an avid commenter. He's always got the goods for us each and every single day. And, and in fact, every time we get on, I think he gives me the hardest time out of the two of us, Luke. So I'm hoping today, because I already prepped him to say that you're slightly a heretic in some things. So he has some stuff in his back pocket that he's going to come out and say to you that I'm really looking forward to. So welcome to Bible and Banter. Last time we got together, like two weeks ago, we talked about the misconceptions about Jean Calvin, my uh, my homeboy, the guy who I've studied for the last few years. And then today we are going to be talking about misconceptions about Calvinism. Boom. That's Wonderful. It. So, Bickford, Bickford, it is so good to have you on the show. I got to ask you a question. How long have you been wanting to come on the show? How long have I been wanting to come on the show? I don't know. Because I will tell you, I've been dating. I will tell you, I have been trying to get you on the show for months. And Eric Eric is avoiding that, I know. Eric repeatedly said, no, no, I don't think so. And finally, uh, but credit to Eric, I will tell you, Bickford, it was his idea to have you on today. Yeah. This is the third week in a row he's asked me. The problem is, he has asked me like half an hour before the show each time. (laughs) This is true. In fairness, in fairness to Eric. I, and I need to say this not just to you guys, but to our audience. I have been very flaky the past couple of weeks. I've like had to call him the day of a couple of times and cancel. <laughs> and uh, Eric has been very patient and has really come through in the clutch. I was, I think that day that you had Matt on, I think you found out less than 24 hours before that I wasn't going to be on there. And you still managed to put together what I think I was looking at the numbers the other day. And it's one of our top three most watched episodes ever. So you know Eric, why? You know why? Cause I'm an all-star, man. I come through. I come through in the clutch. No, everybody wanted to see Matt. <laughs> That's what it is. He's got a large family. <laughs> now, speaking of Matt, um, is he's moved down, right? This is true. Did you announce this already on the podcast? Maybe I just missed that you announced it. No, because he came down last week. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I didn't have time. So, yeah, he's he's been here for like a little over a week now. So, he's yeah, so our Eric, associate pastor. Yep, Eric has hired a new associate and someone that Bickford, I think, already knows. Connections from up north, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Awesome. So, Eric is the man and uh, we have the man, Bickford, on today. And we're going to be talking about not the man. Hold on, but- Luke. Hold on, Luke. You're not going to get past this. You um, called me the other day and you said to me, um, you said, Eric, I have something that I really want to share with the podcast. I said, okay, what is it, Luke? And I thought it might be some mea culpa about um, how you've been wrong all this time about Honest Abe Lincoln. But apparently it wasn't that. No, instead, you wanted to share with uh, with our audience that you t- – tell them the news, Luke. Tell them what you accomplished when you were 18 years old. It's amazing how you managed – to to make like paint me in the worst possible light i just that's i don't just pa- I, I paint you i paint you you know i'm like uh you know i'm like a painter like picasso so, you know so what actually happened was because eric pastors at a church that i formerly attended he was having a conversation with one of those longtime members and he learned something about me that i've never told him before which is that i graduated valedictorian of my high school class 
Okay, what is more? I want the audience to chime in here, right? Um, what is the most likely scenario that you called me up in the middle of the night to tell me this burning like secret that you had that you wanted to share with the entire audience, right? Or someone would simply just come to me and say, Hey, did you know Luke was valedictorian of his high school? Not just like a small high school class, like we're not talking about like three dummies in the sticks, we're talking about nearly 500 people. So you finished at the top of your class, number one out of almost 500 people. How, why would someone on the street just randomly tell me that? See, I think what's really happening here is Eric is projecting. <laughs> what am I projecting? <laughs> this is why I want to send valedictorian. He would have called Luke up in the middle of the night to tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this is why for so long I wanted Bigford on the show and Eric did not because I knew it was going to go down like this. Now, uh, we always like to start the show off with something a little light and fluffy, and so we are going to talk about uh, high school performance today in terms of academics, because uh, if you think Luke was valedictorian is funny, wait till you hear about Eric and Nathaniel Bickford. <laughs> so, so first off, we have to bow down to Luke as, like we said coming onto the show, we had to bow down to Luke's just far superior knowledge and understanding he is truly one of the most intelligent people not only on this show but really and probably our whole denomination i mean how many people get to finish at the top of their class when they're not homeschooled i i have never regretted graduating valedictorian so much i have never <laughs> regretted it so much as in this moment uh and uh so i graduated valedictorian eric was slightly lower and yeah. apparently it's because eric uh you know took the tests in school but never did his work tell us about that eric hardly ever did homework man if i couldn't finish it like in study hall um you know you got like 45 minutes in between you know for a study hall once a day so if your study hall is like the first class of the day you try and get all your homework from the previous day done in that whatever doesn't get done guess what doesn't get passed in yeah. and uh yeah, and, and Eric had Eric had about 150 people in his class. Eric, I think you finished like 30th or 40th, right? Uh, from the bottom, <laughs> <laughs> I was a big dummy, man. Like I, um, and the interesting thing I was talking to my sister about this the other day is, I mean, as people who have been watching the show for a long time, my mom died back in April, and I never like made this connection until now, and I wish I had when my mom was alive because I think we would have gotten a kick out of it. Because my grandfather was a very successful engineer. Like he was on the cutting edge of diamond research and stuff like that um, back when he was working for a company <clears throat> in Massachusetts. Very smart, very intelligent, was a, a high school teacher and a coach and all this other stuff. And his greatest, um, his greatest hope for his daughter was to go off to college, right? And she got like straight A's in high school, super smart. And what did she do? I don't even think she got an associate's degree. Like my mom, my mom didn't, you know, accomplish uh, anything beyond high school as far as academics are concerned. Here I am, some kid who like, dude, I got like B's, C's, and D's. My only A's were in history because I liked that subject. And um, here I am, halfway through a master's degree. So it's kind of like funny that how how different the two of us, our lives shook out. Yeah, well, I I learned something very quickly after becoming valedictorian, which is that um, in the Nobody real cares. world, people care about your high school class ranking for about six months when you're applying to college, and then they never care about it again. Yeah. 
I now, care. Um, I care that you were valedictorian. Now, <laughs> the funniest, the funniest thing about this though is actually not that I was valedictorian or that Eric was Nate, Nayad, Delay, Varick, whatever valedictorian backwards is. The funny thing is what happened to Bickford. Bickford, please tell us how you performed in high school and then tell us why, because it's the craziest reason I've ever heard. I was middle of the road. I was middle of the road. I had ability, but ended up graduating middle of the road. Uh, the reason was because I did my homework and didn't pass it in. Did his homework, so, so didn't I, pass it in. So I have met people who um, didn't do the homework, people like Eric. I have met people who did the homework and passed it in, people like me. Bigford, you're the first person I've ever met, I think, who did the homework and didn't pass it in. <laughs> What's with that? <laughs> it, is, it has got to be the stupidest reason ever. Yeah, yeah. However, there's a serious reason behind that. And that's that I, I battled depression big time mm -hmm. all through uh, junior high and high school. And when it would come time, when it was class time, uh, I couldn't focus on what was going on half the time. And so yeah, it didn't get passed in. It would end up in a pile in my book bag or my locker. And look, that's I, I think that season of life is difficult for most people. I'll tell you guys, the hardest year of my life by far was seventh grade. And not it's not even close. Yeah. The um, hardest, the hardest year of your life? Seventh grade, no question. Why? Uh that's a that's for another day. That's for a different episode. Uh today we're gonna I'm talk just trying to figure out like if I should make fun of it or not. <laughs> like I'm trying to gauge on whether or not like, Oh, the academics are really challenging or like, Oh, I started puberty or something like that. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about it off I air, hadn't brought it up. Ask, ask me that question another day. Okay. Today we are going to be talking not about depression, not about high school GPA and no, not even about beards, which I must say, all of the beards are looking excellent. By the way, we got five viewers, uh, Luke. We don't have any likes, no shares. No one has commented. Uh, if you are watching right now, we ask you to like, share, comment below. Um, if not, we just know that you hate America, right? Like that's that's what we know. Kind of like Luke. Luke hates America. He hates uh, George Washington. He hates Abe Lincoln. He believes that everything that we learn in the public school is just liberal propaganda, which I can't disagree with that, by the way. Um, I know you can't disagree with it. For I'm right on all of all of these issues whenever we talk about history, and yet somehow you still end up mad at me. I don't know how that happens. Um, however... Oh, what do we see here? Enjoying your stories. I've never heard the terminology. Pass it on. Pass it in. We say turn it in. Maybe that was the problem, Bickford. Is, <laughs> is they said turn it in, and you didn't understand. If they passed it, in, it would have been a lot better. Hey, thank you, Nancy and uh, and Mike for finally commenting and hitting that like button. And even one, uh, Nancy gave us like the wow button. That's awesome. I yeah. appreciate the wows. All right. So. I could do this with you guys all day. It's very fun. However, we have important material to get to today. We do. We are going to be talking about common misconceptions of Calvinism. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, and I think actually first we should acknowledge uh, the elephant in the room, which is me. I'm the only not – at least not fully Calvinist in the conversation. But I will say this. Even as a not quite Calvinist, um, I don't know any – 
system of belief within Christendom that has been as misrepresented as Calvinism has. Amen. Amen. Calvinist lives matter. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. Don't. We elect Calvinist lives matter. Let's get it right. Uh, no, let's get into, let's start talking about this and we're going to, you know, cover the gamut, but why don't we start with this? Um, because I, I would imagine that you guys weren't always Calvinist. So let's start with this. What was one thing you misunderstood about Calvinism before you became a Calvinist? Because I, I, I can answer this question too. Even though I'm not quite Calvinist, I'm definitely more Calvinist than I once was. And there are, there are a lot of things I misunderstood. So I think for me, the biggest misunderstanding that I had about Calvinism um, was that I thought that Calvinism was a philosophical um, con- construction, not a biblical one. That was that was my biggest misconception. What about for you guys, personally? There wasn't one. What you just always been a Calvinist? <laughs> yes, your whole life. <laughs> my whole life. Oh wow! <clears throat> yeah, he, his parents loved him. So they raised him correctly. Um, so I would I would pause, say that pause. we need to give a disclaimer today because I know this is going to happen. I want all of our Armenian brothers and sisters to know that we love you yeah. and that uh, and that we we believe that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ and not through Calvinism. And yes. all of the jokes we're going to make about you today, while they might have some grains of truth in them, are meant in fun. All right, yes, go ahead. They're not. So and even like before you and I were talking, Luke before even Bickford came in was uh, about Mike Winger, who is an Arminian uh, apologist. And he's someone that you and I both really enjoy. There's a, there's a great level uh, of respect I have for folks, whether they're Arminian or Calvinist and whatnot. We just disagree on some doctrines, right? So um, like, like there's a particular doctrine within Calvinism. And again, we got to define Calvinism. I don't necessarily like the term Calvinism, but I, I just call it, you know, the faith, you know, because I think, and I don't mean that snarkily or snarky. I mean it like, this is truly why I believe the Bible teaches. And the reason I don't have misconceptions or did not have misconceptions about Calvinism is, and I've said this on the podcast before, I kind of walked into Calvinism, honestly, like I studied the Bible and then it wasn't until I went to Bible college and it was in Arminian college. And they started telling me everything that was wrong with Calvinism. And I was like, wait, you're telling me that there's everything wrong that I thought the Bible teaches. <laughs> and then like, and of course, like I'm trying to engage with the conversations that are within the theology textbook. And I'm going like, yeah, he's not like the author. And this is a guy with like multiple PhDs. And I can plainly some dummy from Oxford, Massachusetts going, yeah, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Your arguments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you, you've yeah. raised an important point, Eric, which is that I think a lot of the misconceptions about Calvinism, actually come from anti-Calvinism, that, that yeah. there's a, a real stigma against the doctrines of grace in much of the church. At least I know I experienced that, which is why I had the misconceptions I did. Bickford, since you're a, apparently a cradle-to-grave Calvinist, predestined— before- Well, we don't know if he's to the grave yet. We don't know. Uh, <laughs> we just know cradle to now. Perseverance of the saints, Eric, come on. Uh, <laughs> let, me ask, let me ask you this then. Instead of asking your most— you, you know. A misconception for you. Um, what's the misconception that you see most often in people who oppose Calvinist doctrine? What's the most common misconception? Uh, probably the 
probably the puppet theology mm. understanding. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, in some cases, it's not really a misunderstanding because there are those ultra hyper Calvinists that actually do teach it. Mm -hmm. Which and are not Bigford and I. People I've interacted with on that oftentimes have been exposed to those people who yeah. go to that real yeah. extreme. So, so, so let's let's do this now because we're going to talk about the misconceptions. But to Eric's point, we should maybe first define what Calvinism actually is. Mm -hmm. um, Eric, should we let our guest give his definition, and then maybe we can uh, elucidate anything that or add anything we might want? Bigford, yeah. since, since you were Calvinist before any either of us were, tell us what it is. Oh, tell us what it is, and you want it short, I assume. <laughs> I don't want you to quote well, we'll get 45 minutes. You know, my preaching motto is preach till you're done. Yeah. <laughs> preach till they're asleep. <laughs> so I could go that route if you want. Which is a very Calvinist yeah. thing to say, by the way. Calvinists typically preach expositionally, verse by verse, and will go longer than most other preachers because they love the Bible. So just to be clear, it is not a misconception that Calvinists are long-winded. Now we are. Yep. Now, sorry. Tell us what Calvinism is. I'll, I'll be brief. <laughs> a good summary statement is the, the doctrines of grace. Hmm. Because the, the key to Calvinism, or I prefer reformed theology, is the focus on God's grace. Nancy Helm just Helm's guest just put in the comment tulip, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, which is a good expression of it. It's not perfect, a perfect expression, but it's a good expression, and was a response to uh, arguments brought up by Arminians in the 17th century. Yeah, and let's not let's not assume everyone knows what tulip is. So tulip is a, a, an acronym for what you might call the five doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism. Yes. Uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, ir irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Yes. Um, and we might get into all those things as we're talking about the misconceptions today. I think I would say that my understanding of Calvinism could really be boiled down to two things, which is sovereignty and glory. So, and this this is why I say I'm kind of Calvinist. While I don't accept, uh, you know, all five points of tulip or necessarily subscribe to all the doctrines of grace, I do think, and Eric maybe makes the argument a, a little strongly at times, but he's not wrong. I think the clear testimony of Scripture is in favor of the sovereignty and the glory of God, uh, and that Amen. that to me is what's at the heart of Calvinism: is the, no, no. the sovereignty of God and yeah. salvation, and the glory that that brings him. Now, granted. What's, you know, obviously when you bring up Calvinism, it's over and against in a sense or, or pitted against Arminianism, right? So when we say Calvinism is a, or Reformed theology is a um, system which emphasizes God's sovereignty and glory, that's not to say that Arminianism does not. Right. However, particular to Reformed theology, we believe that it that it does it to a greater extent, or at least I do. I refer to Reformed theology or Calvinism as big God theology. Um, and Armenians might have different views within their little kingdom, um, but but oftentimes when I have conversations with, with die-in-the-will Armenians, um, they often go, proceed from a place of human experience. And I believe your best 
um, your best reformed theologians will argue from a place that begins with God. So yep. you have, so that's why I call it big God theology is we work one, we work from two different directions and we're meeting in the middle. Um, yep. You know, I ha- I've had a lot of conversations recently um, and I don't know if it's because we've done the podcast on Calvin or, or just, it just, God just works it that way that people have, but I've had conversations where people go like, what about free will? You know, they have this conversation with me because in, in reform theology or Calvinism is there free will. And I go, yeah. So they say, because I remember, you know, there was this time and, and they speak from their own experience. I remember there was a time in which I, um, I chose to follow Jesus. Are you saying yeah. I didn't use? And I go, no, you chose. They go, wait, wait. I thought you were a Calvinist. I am. But you're saying that I chose. I said, yeah, yeah, you chose. Mm-hmm. But what do you mean yeah. by that? That they'll say to me, like, how did I choose? If you're saying that it was God's sovereignty, I go, well, where in scripture do you think? I mean, you're pitting your choice in God's sovereignty against one another. And right. instead, you need to look at your own condition and realize that prior to God's regeneration of your heart, prior to being prior um, to, to your heart being replaced from stone to, to a heart that can receive Christ prior to that your only choice was to reject God and to be rebellious. And now you're free to choose. What did Mike just type? Bad people already elected, completely atoned for overwhelmingly called never falling away. Is that another way to say to it? Oh, bacon. Okay. <laughs> I didn't see it. Mike, you should have only capitalized the first word of each phrase because I'm going. Wow, that's rough. You also oh, yeah. need to know how to use shift enter. Yeah, bud, you got to You got to You got to capitalize just the first letter of each phrase. Yeah. Um, so in uh, in Mike, Mike makes a good point. Uh, free to choose what you desire. Exactly. You will be bound by your fleshly fallen nature. Um, to choose only to sin. You're only actually true. This is like, you're only free to choose when God changes your heart. That's the grace and mercy of God is that he chooses to save you, not according to any works of your own, but because somehow in some peculiar way, we don't understand it. He He finds glory in it. Now, pause for a minute here, because you actually, Eric, in your explanation, which was pretty good, brought up what I think think is one of the main misconceptions about Calvinism, Mm -hmm. which is that a lot of people use or treat or think of Calvinism and Reformed theology as synonymous. While they're very related, they're not exactly the same. So it depends who you're talking to. It depends uh, who you're talking to. And Bigford, like full disclosure, Bigford went to Westminster Seminary. It doesn't get any more reformed than that. Well, th- this is great then, since he's the lifetime Calvinist and he's been to Reformed Seminary. Bickford, will you please draw the thin red line between Calvinism and Reformed? Where do they overlap? How are they different? I would, I would say, in a way, they're not different. But maybe Reformed I'm Calvinism to... carries certain connotations that Reformed does not. Uh, but if you were to draw a distinction, I think it would be this. Calvinism more particularly refers to tulip, whereas Reformed theology looks more at the whole of theology rather than just those five points. Okay, so this is interesting then. I really am the perfect third guy for this because clearly I have some misconceptions. Yeah. Um, would Would you guys describe 
Luther as Calvinist? Because he certainly was reformed, but he wasn't Calvinist. He's, right? No, he was not reformed. He was Lutheran. You, you are different. What? Yes. He's the one who engineered the Reformation. Reformed is not synonymous with Reformation. Right. Whoa. Wow. So there was, during the Reformation, you had the Lutherans, you had the Reformed, you had the Anabaptists, and you had the Zwinglians. There possibly were a few others too, but those would be the main four streams. We, we just learned that Luke needs more church history. So you guys really do, well, I, I know this part of church history. I guess maybe missed my terms very mixed up. So you guys basically consider Calvinism and Reformed theology as synonymous? It depends who you talk to. Obviously, obviously he does. I really don't make the differentiation because I don't care because no one wants me in their camp. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's true. And they don't want Pickford either. I mean, that's the thing, right? So no, like the Calvin, someone who's a Calvinist, someone who is reformed typically would reject Bickford and I because of our belief in conditional immortality. The reformed, at least from my understanding, those who claim the title reformed are Presbyterian. If you are outside of um, baptizing babies, they're not going to consider you in their reformed camp. So La Tom here saying- It's according to James White. Marketing. It's according to James White, by the way. Uh, I, I appreciate Tom's comment. It's all marketing. And he made a comment earlier I want to read. Calvinists just like to take all the credit for the Reformation. <laughs> <laughs> it's Would you true. That's a misconception? What's that? Would you say that's a misconception on Tom's part, that Calvinists like to take all the credit for the Reformation? It's all marketing? Hey, the, the Reformed Calvinists love Luther. Yes. But he's still considered, still considered Lutheranism. <laughs> However, I will say that Lutheranism today, actually Lutheranism 30 years after Luther died, was different than Luther's own theology. It changed very rapidly after. Yeah. Let's um let's take let's continue with another misconception here. And I'm I'm gonna sort of take them in turn. I'm no some of these I I actually hold, some of them I think are complete misrepresentations, but I hear them all the time. By the so way, can I just say can I just say I because I, I disagreed fundamentally with um with something that Bickford said earlier, which is very rare. Bickford and I agree theologically on like 95% of things. It is strange. And it's not because we're both Calvinists. We, I think we just have similar trains of thought. Like we think through things very similarly. So um, he said that Tulip was a great summation of Calvinism or reformed doctrine. I think that's one of the misconceptions. I don't think that it is. I think that you can read through um, Calvin's teachings. I think that you can read through um, his commentaries. You can read through his, uh, um, the institutes, oh, which I have. No, you got to pause. You got to pause because we need to talk about this because this okay. is where we, we got to get on the same page. Is Calvinism, is it the teachings of John Calvin or is it the codified Calvinism that arose in the, uh, you know, amongst his followers? Because we got we to yeah. be clear what we're talking about here. So I, I want to correct something here, Eric. Okay. You said I said Tulip was a good summation of Reformed theology. That's not what I said. Okay. I said, I said Calvinism, if you're going to draw a distinction, Calvinism is the five points of Calvinism, Tulip. Okay. Reformed theology is much bigger and broader than that. Fair enough. Yeah. I stand now, corrected, good fellow. 
Now, Mike, Mike, Alex, um, I don't think it's very kind of you to refer to Leighton Flowers as girly. You shouldn't do that. Uh, Leighton Flowers is he. Oh, my goodness. Don't, first <laughs> off, don't watch him on on the YouTube um, because he doesn't make good arguments. But um, he is a so nice guy. Mike, Mike was actually referring to Tulip. I just wanted to bring up Leighton Flowers so that Eric would react. I, uh, I, I, I listen to that guy, and every time I hear him, I just cringe because it's like he misrepresents. He is the chief enemy of Reformed theology. He claims to be a Calvinist, but then when he articulates what he thinks is Calvinist doctrine, he is he is so way off. Um, so anyway, by the way, by the way, one of our former guests, Chris Date is having regular dialogue with Leighton Flowers on his yeah. misrepresentation. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know. Now, uh, next misconception mis, uh, I want to talk about, because I think it's one of the absolute most common ones, is that Calvinists don't believe in evangelism. Because if God's the one who elects, and I see the Calvinists shaking their heads, don't worry, boys, I'm going to let you respond. Um, and for the record, I because I know so many Calvinists, I've, I, I know how bad this one is. But let's, let's finish the misconception. Mm -hmm. Because Calvinists believe in election and predestination and God's the one who chooses, then it doesn't really matter how much you preach or who you preach to. God's going to be the one who saves people in the end. Amen. Have they read Romans? <laughs> <laughs> so, dude, so first off, one of the most successful church planting outfits in the world right now is Acts 29, which is expressly Calvinistic. Like it is expressly reformed and complementarian. Go figure, right? And if you um, look historically up through the, from the time of the Reformation through what, the late 19th century. Who were all the missions organizations? Who were all not the, the Armenians? Not the Armenians. They're they're too busy trying to sell you a used car. I mean, that's how I view Armenian theology. Like, if we're going to talk about representation here, um, like I've if if I'm an Armenian, right? Like, if I believe that all Hold I have on. to do is pray some some prayer, right? Is what I'm going to do is try to sell you the gospel as though I were selling you a used car. Eric. And that's not the Calvinist perspective. We say, you know what? I'm going to preach the gospel, and it's God's work in His in, uh, through the Holy Spirit in regenerating you that will see people come to know Christ. Eric, we are discussing misconceptions of Calvinism today. If we want to discuss misconceptions of Arminianism, we'll bring on an Arminian. Um, uh, there are no – listen, just listen to me. I'll tell you everything that's wrong with Arminian theology. <laughs> Bickford, any other comments on – I mean you guys gave a, – probably like the simplest and best answer, which is that actually Calvinism or Calvinists and people who subscribe to Reformed theology have been some of the most active uh, proselytizers in Christian history. Yes. But I think, I think I'll add this. God makes it very clear in the Bible that the means by which he brings the message mm -hmm. of the gospel to people is through his people. Mm -hmm. And so the Reformed as a whole, Calvinists as a whole, obviously there are exceptions, but for the most part, you know, we look at those calls like in Matthew 28 or in uh, Romans 8 through 10 and, and elsewhere of going and preaching the gospel very seriously. Mm. Uh, next misconception, and by the way, if you're in the comments and you have a, have a conception of Calvinism that you want to ask about, We've got a lifelong Calvinist here to answer it. Uh, and, me... and I promise if you if you put something in the comments and it's genuinely from you and it's not Mike Alex just trying to get a rise out of me, <laughs> I will be a much more calm. I just like to, you know, uh, you know, make fun of those um, people that I don't know. 
So now let me ask you this uh, real quick, Bickford, because I know on this subject, we could go a while. What is your cutoff time so that we start wrapping things up before you go to leave? Um, supper. Normally I do a Bible study at three o'clock on Tuesdays, uh, but I'm doing this instead. So, okay. Oh, well, I get, I got to be done by three 45. So I would say by three 30, I'll, I'll start to wrap things up because here's the deal. This next one, you guys are going to be tempted to give the world's longest answer. Um, and it, I'm going to try to discourage you from, because look, I know you guys are both faithful exegetes, so you're going to want to. I'm going to try to discourage you from doing what James White did from the pulpit about a week ago when he walked through the major biblical objections to Calvinism and gave hermeneutical reasons why they were all wrong. Uh, I, I'm sure that would be great, but we don't quite have time for it. But I'd say the next misconception is that um, Calvinists reject certain passages of Scripture, passages like the one in Second Peter's that says that God desires that all, uh, um, all men should come to repentance, passages like John 3.16, where it says God so loved all the world, uh, passages like I think it's First uh, John 2 where that people point to, uh, again, one of those, the world passages. And so I think this is another misconception is that Calvinists just ignore, or maybe an, an, another way to put it would be that they, uh, they engage in hermeneutical acrobatics to get away from the fact that the Bible clearly teaches unlimited atonement and limited application of that atonement. Respond. Um. I think They're the wrong. short, easy answer. <laughs> They're wrong. <laughs> you said you wanted a short answer. Nothing more needs to be said. Just they're wrong. The short, easy answer is to say, we don't do it any more than they do it. Elaborate a little bit on that. Well, uh, we could say the same thing about Arminians. And we, we could jump into uh, Ephesians chapter 2 or John chapters 3 through 6 or any number, number of passages and say to the, to the same person, okay, well, why do you ignore these passages? Why do you do hermeneutical acrobats? Yeah. I think a lot of what's going on here on either side is our attempt to take the word and interpret the word with the word. Right. But as we do that, you know, there are our own tendencies that sometimes get in the way, our own ways of thinking that sometimes get in the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that doesn't help. Yeah. So that doesn't fully answer the question, but can, I think- Can you, I, I do want to know, can you just rephrase the question in, yeah. in, in like five seconds so I can give you the answer that I already have picked out in scripture? Yes, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a follow-up question that I think gets strikes more to the heart of this. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you, you Calvinists- do you just take passages like Ephesians 2 and Romans 8 and elevate them above all the other passages that say that God wants to save everybody? No. No. <laughs> okay, I asked for a short answer. You gave me one. <laughs> but, but we'll just, you know, we'll just talk, you know, because I have this in my mind, right? Because to me, this argument is so solid that I've yet to hear someone refute it, right? When it comes to monergism in salvation, meaning that it's truly a work of God and not god cooperating with you right which is called synergism mm -hmm. or i like to call it heresy but um <clears throat> so i'm just i'm kidding uh so right he says uh this is jesus right so 
I'm looking in John 3, which to me is just like a Hall of Fame passage. I'm not elevating it above other scripture. I'm just saying like it speaks directly to this, right? He says that, um, uh, he says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, a, another way of translating that, that I think gets to the heart of it, and I preached on this like last year, is to be born from above to be born and where's from above he's referring to heaven so being born from heaven luke you have you have three kids is that right yes and one more on the way correct okay so you are you're very much experienced in this right so um i mean your wife is maybe not you but at least you've witnessed the birth of three children I, i took part in that i'll have you know I had a role to play too. <laughs> Tell your wife that. Uh, <laughs> so I imagine that you were in at the hospital or there was a home birth or, or whatever, but you were there, right? Who is it that pushed that child out of your wife? Yeah, that would be my wife. It's an act of your wife, right? It's mm-hmm. an act of her. She said, get this baby out of me, right? And she's and she's pushing, she's doing all that stuff. We've seen the movies or we've had wives do this. I mean, they're superheroes. They are amazing, right? Why Women, for what they go through, I mean, praise God for women. When they say, man, if a man had to push out a child, we would have no children in the world. Amen, sister. You are 100% correct. <laughs> I say that to say this. You do not participate in the birth uh, of your own birth, right? Like, so like when I came out of my mother, when you came out of your mother, you did not like come like pulling yourself out of the womb. Did you? No, not a chance. Same can be said, same can be said about being born again. That is not something that you participate in other than receiving that new birth and being born from above. I hate to stop you when you're on a roll, but, um, it is actually typically the case that babies do a little bit to help get out. And I think an Arminian would latch onto that analogy and insist that it, it doesn't work. They're wrong. I agree They're wrong. You. I'm sorry. They're wrong. They're but wrong. You're wrong. I'm not going to find a new analogy. That analogy is perfect. <laughs> the lifetime Calvinist is telling you that your analogy is flawed. Well, he's entitled to be wrong too. <laughs> So that brings us to our next misconception. Our next misconception about Cal- Calvinism is that all Calvinists are arrogant pricks. <laughs> Bingo. No, I think I think there really is a perception that Calvinists, for the most part, are um, they're intellectuals, right? They're people who think they're smarter than everyone. Like, I really think this is one of the common misconceptions about Calvinism and about Calvinists. So, uh, Bickford, respond, you, you, you arrogant prick. <laughs> oh, Can you uh, please I stop swearing on the podcast? This is a family show. Will you let the man answer? True. Um, start, over, start over, Bickford. We are talking over you. Start but, over. But the arrogance is not a result of the theology. Mm. Reformed theology is not an arrogant theology. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. If you really pay attention to what it's teaching, it's, it is the most humbling theology. Absolutely. But what happens is, particularly those people who turn to Calvinism as a young adult, I would say more than anybody else, uh, who, who see the truth of Calvinism as a young adult, 
they get this overwhelming passion for it. <clears throat> so doing, they end up with this arrogance or, or a seeming arrogance. Sometimes it's not really arrogant. They're just so passionate it comes, comes across that way. Mm. Mm -hmm. Eric has no response because it's true. Well, <laughs> I do think um, knowledge knowledge that doesn't drive to humility obviously is going to create um conceit uh and i think in some personalities um lend that right mm -hmm. like so like for me okay i'm on the podcast in conversations and whatnot i like to joke about these things right i like to joke about all sorts of stuff and in and i do believe that um reformed theology is superior to armenian theology in its accuracy but it should drive me and anyone else to humility because at the core of Reformed theology is the grace of God, the grace and mercy of God. And if you believe that it is God who has called you to himself, and we believe what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, which is faith is a gift from God given to us. Why? So that no one may boast. So our, our gift of faith that we have received from God. We look at that and go, this isn't given to me for me. This is given to me for the glory of God. What I need to do is, is work to the end to which I decrease all the more so that he might increase. Yeah. Um, that's, that's at the heart of Reformed theology. Are there insufferable jerks out there? Yes, and I think that's more in Reformed fundamentalism. Just as much as there's Armenian fundamentalism, which are also many of the King James only folks, um, I've I've yet I don't know maybe Bigford has met them. I've never met a, a reformed person who's also a King James onlyist. Have you? The the closest I've found is someone who I actually highly respect, and he said that he was King James only, only because he had already compared it to the Greek and Hebrew and found it and and knew it in comparison to those and you didn't have time to go and compare the newer translations to the Greek and the Hebrew. So he wasn't the King James only the only in the way that we mean it. It was purely practical for him. Okay. That's not yeah. a King James. So, um, <laughs> so like it's a streak that, of fundamentalism. That highlights the difference though of that type yeah. of, yeah. So um, the next, yeah. next misconception, um, Calvinists, when they pray, never ask God to do anything because it's all predetermined anyways. Wrong. <laughs> Bigford is already. Do they right? know any Calvinists? <laughs> Just, I'm telling you, this is some of the things that people think that 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 don't understand Calvinism, right? Yeah, because of that's, like, that's like me saying that an Arminian goes around with a daisy every time they pray and just picks off the petals and say, "He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me, and he loves me not." It's not an Arminian, but that <laughs> will address address the misconception. Is do you do you guys pray for God to do things? He's already decided it all. Yes, he very clearly states that he wants us to pray for things and that he uses our prayers. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I would say I, the only caveat on there is I do think that my prayers can um, emphasize God's sovereignty when I just ask God's will to be done. God, I'm asking for these things. Like I'm praying for healing for this person and that person. Um, but let it be your will. And the main point of this healing or not bringing healing is for you to be glorified and you can be glorified whether someone is healed or not. 
um, that's up to him. I'll add to that is praying for our our will to be conformed to his will. Yeah, yes. Ultimately, yes. we really desire that. And yeah. we, we have to pray for that because that's a huge it. that's a huge central piece to i think reformed theology is being is is sanctification i mean that's the big difference between one of the big differences between um lutheranism and reformed theology um is that lutheranism doesn't really deal with sanctification all that much i mean luther doesn't really write about it and in fact i was recently listening to a lecture and that was very intentional um whereas the reformed folks they look at, at at sanctification, which is the the process of becoming more like Christ or being conformed more to His image, as a means of grace. As God is working in that midst where we are continually forsaking our sin in trusting and believing in Christ. Hmm. Uh, next misconception: perfect timing, Meredith. Next misconception is that all Calvinists have beards. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think you can actually be a real Calvinist unless you have a beard. It's very disappointing for the women in the audience who might have wanted to subscribe to Calvinism. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm a lifelong Calvinist, and in high school I had a beard. So, yeah. <laughs> though I went for quite a few years without having one after that. Uh-huh. I went um, back to the beard two, for two or three years. So, so you, can, you can actually believe in Reformed theology and not have a beard. That is true. Yeah. Um, I, and I don't understand. Maybe maybe um, you you understand uh, Bigford, why so many Calvinists have beards? I don't know. I just, I, before I was a Calvinist, I always wanted a beard. I was in the army, had to shave every day. And I said, once I get out of the army, I'm never going to shave again. So um, here I am and I have this beard. It's not because of reformed theology. I don't think maybe God just predestines that his true and right theologians would be blessed <laughs> with such a beautiful face forest. I don't know. It's hey, just awesome. Hey, Spurgeon didn't have one. He was pretty solid. All right, he now, did. Ha- he he had one at times. Uh, now that now the fun starts because we've got some people chiming in. Mike Alex says, "How about the claim that God predestined the people, not individual persons?" And I'll tell you guys, this is the argument I hear most often when I go to Romans nine. Hmm. Are you guys familiar at all with this argument? Not really. Oh, I thought you were gonna say Romans nine. <laughs> I was gonna say that. Yeah, we. That's kind of our passage, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so if you've if you've not heard, um, and this is this is where I will say, maybe for the first half of the episode, I played the part of anti-Calvinist pretty well. But this is where, when we get into Romans nine and sort of the big passages, mm-hmm. I I say I'm pretty much Calvinist because I think that the scriptures say what they say very clearly. However, um, a lot of folks who uh, are opposed to Calvinism will go to Romans 9 and they'll say, you are applying this to individuals in a way that Paul did not intend for it to be. Because when he talks about Jacob and Esau, he's talking about peoples, the descendants of Jacob and Esau. Uh, What's the other example that he gives in Romans 9? The potter and the clay. Well, uh, there's there's another set of people he talks about. Um, oh, he talks about uh, Pharaoh and Moses, right? This isn't just about Pharaoh and Moses. This is about the Egyptians and the Israelites. The the, the problem is it's both. Oh, that's not what I thought you were saying. It's both. <laughs> you, you look at those. I mean, he talks about Jacob and Esau. And, and honestly, both there in Romans and in the Old Testament, it's talking about Jacob and Esau. It's also talking about the people. Same thing with Moses and Pharaoh. Hmm. It is specifically talking about Moses and Pharaoh, but it is also talking about the Egyptians 
and the Israelites, or the the elect and the non-elect. Mm-hmm. Both are going on there. And we, and we see that throughout, especially in the New Testament. Paul's letters are, are a great example. But we have all these passages that are, are talking about things that are both corporate and individual. And we get, we get into very dangerous territory with many of these things when we take it as one or the other. Hmm. Yeah. And it's it, both going on. To, to me, I also, you know, when people... T- Romans nine is one of my favorite passages when people often come with a, an emotional argument. Um, I, I, I understand the theological argument in saying, Hey, um, is Paul referring to just a people or is it persons individually? I rightly agree with my brother here in that it means both, but I also refer to Romans nine when people say, but does that mean we're robots or, or how is God just in condemning one person, my neighbor, but not myself. And then I read this passage and I read this for my church one time and I broke down in tears. Like the, uh, this passage, man, starting in, in, in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? He has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before his glory. Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. And then you have this picture of Hosea and, and Gomer and you go, man, we are the whore. We're the one who perpetually sins and cheats on God and have an adulterous affair with all the things of this world. And this is what he says. He says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. In her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they, there they will be called sons of the living God. Yeah. I mean, you look at that and you go, you have no, I don't care if you are reprobate or elect, you have absolutely no right over your life. That's why when someone says, when it comes to abortion, right? Well, you're trumping the rights of the mother or, or this and that. Well, first off, they're a mother, so you're, so you're admitting that they're having a child. But two, they ha- the mother has no rights. The husband has no rights. The father has no rights. You and I have no rights over our children apart from that which has been delegated to us from the God, the creator of all things, who owns everything. And to his people, he says, even though you have been like Gomer cheating on me all over town, I will bring you back to me. You are mine. Some, sometimes when the shows go a little longer, I sit around and I wonder, is Mike still the best commenter on Bible and banter? And inevitably, he proves that he is. Uh, yeah, Mike just wants to cause problems. I think there's better comments out there. They we're, actually have a good point. No, we're gonna, you're just causing trouble. 
we're going to do with the Hebrews passage in a minute. First, I actually want to say something here, and I've sort of played devil's advocate for a little while here because we have a lifelong Calvinist, and then Eric, you know, uh, views Arminianism about the same way that he views belief in the unicorn. Uh, but <laughs> let, me, let me say this. It, this is a really important piece of Romans 9, I think. And I'm an almost Calvinist mostly because of Romans 9. Um, my father actually tells a story of, of how he came to Calvinism, which is that he's in, uh, and he, he came to Christianity later in life than, than uh, at least than I did. So he's reading the Bible for the first time. He's in seminary. He's reading Romans 9. And he realized, I either, he had this crisis of faith where he said, I either have to believe what this says, or I have to rip it out of my Bible. Um, so Romans 9 for me was, was the turning point for me as well. I haven't quite come all the way yet, but I'm definitely further in your camp than in any other. And I think the key verse is 19 when it, when it comes to this issue. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? And it blows my mind how often that's the argument that's leveled against a Calvinist interpretation of the scripture. It's that's why the, I read it. It's the exact, it's the exact question that Paul answers in the passage. And let me just say this to my Arminian brothers and sisters. Love you and appreciate when you bring hermeneutical, exegetical arguments against any doctrine, because we should always be submitting what we believe to the scriptures. However, if your argument is verse 19, you're not disagreeing with the Calvinists. You're disagreeing with Paul. Um, should we deal with the passage in Hebrews? Because I think this is one of the one of the passages that gets thrown in the Calvinist face, and we might as well just go ahead and go read it, right? Let's go. Let's go read the passage. I think before we get there, I think there's a couple other things here that are important. Um, with with Nancy and with with Meredith, Meredith, mm -hmm. Meredith makes a comment: prepared for destruction. Man, I still don't get that. It's a hard word. Will you real quick define superlapsarianism for those who might not know? Hold on, hold on. Okay. Let me, let me finish with, with Meredith because I'm, I'm going to take that and go to superlapsarian. Uh, at least I'll try to go to superlapsarian. <laughs> Meredith's comment is, is a great one because honestly, if we don't hear that and say exactly what she just said, there is a hardness in our hearts. Mm -hmm. There really is. And people will, will look at Calvinists and say, oh, you guys don't even care. You, you see people are prepared for destruction. You don't care. Honestly, most Calvinists do. We see that and we say, wow, that's hard. But I think that also gets to what Nancy is bringing up. Her, her husband, John, pastor down in Texas, brings up supralapsarianism. Defining it, I, I don't know if I can give it a good definition today. Well, it's really just it's superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. Well, it's basically just double predestination, isn't it? I mean, if you boil it down, um, not exactly. There, there is difference. The superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism are are two attempts at understanding the order the the order by which god decrees certain things to happen so 
how uh, when he and I, it, when is a key word for these when he decrees uh, for creation to happen when does he decree for the fall to happen when does he decree for salvation to happen so infralapsarianism and supralapsarian put these things in a particular order so for infralapsarian uh, the the decree to create is first whereas in supralapsarianism the degree for salvation is first here is the problem both attempts end up being entirely extra biblical so you're not a lapsarian you're not I one or the not other. infra or supra I ignore the debate completely because it requires logical leaps to get to either one. Bickford cannot make a solid biblical exegetical point to get to either one. Bickford, I, I beat this on the show all the time, and I'm so happy to hear it coming from your lips. We should never say less and never say more than the scriptures do. I love it. I, I and I tend to agree because I think the I don't think the Bible speaks of and I I was actually reading um, uh, Burkhoff on this a couple of weeks ago because I get really confused between the two lapser infra and supra lapsarianism. Um, first off, I can't spell them. Um, and well, you're 120th in your class. So. <laughs> yeah. So what what else did you expect? But um, the, I mean, they're challenging concepts. You know, you're talking about the order of sal uh, of, and we're not talking ordo salutis. We're talking about the order of the decrees. Um, and I just don't think the Bible says one way or the other. Now, I do think that we have terms where you know, um, a people chosen before the foundation of the world. Okay, that's fine. I think that I think you could easily say, well, God chose since before creation who is going to be saved. I have no problem with that. But I could also see you say, but that could just be that could just mean since the foundation of the world is talking more about how when, you know, after Adam and Eve or or at the fall or or whatever. So, yeah, to, to me, this is this is where some of these discussions and I'm, I'm not opposed to having them, but they, they start to sort of uh, leave the realm of relevancy for me, because I think whether it's from the foundation of the world or before the world, the whole point is it's before you did anything good or bad. Right. Mm -hmm. The point, the, the offense still remains. Um, what I think brings up the, the next misconception I want to talk about, which I think we really should spend some time on because it is, um, as you, as you said, you guys have both said there, this is a very emotional argument much of the time. And I think this is the argument that is the strongest from the other side, not in the sense that it has legitimacy, but in the sense that it sways people, it moves people. And it's the conception that the God of the Calvinists is a monster. Well, uh, they're wrong. I mean, <laughs> Eric, you, you're so you're so uh, elaborative and descriptive today. I appreciate the. Uh, I mean, the when you read like you, you can't you can't make that statement and truly fully understand Reformed theology. Because at the heart of Reformed theology is God's grace and his mercy. Is God is God a monster because he carries out justice on those who have who have perpetrated injustices against him? 
No. So, Eric, I'm going to interrupt you. Okay. Because when I, every time I have heard the argument, unless the person is just being difficult, which usually isn't the case, unless they're just being difficult, every time I have heard that argument against Calvinism, there's been some particular incident behind it, something in that person's life. And so instead of trying to go to scripture to prove them wrong or to have a, a theological fight with them, my question is this, why do you say that? Hmm. Because there's always a reason for it, almost always a reason for it. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is something that Devin mentioned in the podcast on Saturday about apologetics. He told a wonderful story about uh, an apologist he greatly admires who, when he was a young man and, and first studying apologetics, he had the opportunity to have a conversation with a skeptic who, who had all these questions for him. And he gave all these nice, neat, solid biblical answers. And as the conversation went on, at some point, the person got really quiet and sort of stepped back and started to cry. Mm -hmm. um, and he realized that that person was not actually looking for intellectual arguments. They needed comfort because of the great pain and distress that they felt toward God because of the circumstances of their life. And I so appreciate, Bickford, uh, you, you recognizing that much of the consternation in this matter is not something philosophical mm -hmm. or intellectual. It's deeply personal and emotional. Uh, I think the passage that that really comes to my mind when we talk about the stuff is in Luke chapter 13, where uh, someone comes to Jesus and basically asks the 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 age old question of why do bad things happen to good people, right? And the answer that Jesus gives is amazing. Uh, he says that's that's the wrong question. Mm -hmm. uh, why do good things happen to bad people? And, and I really feel like much of, and again, this is where I end up almost a Calvinist. Uh, I'm supposed to be, you know, pressing you guys, but I, I, I'd like to say something in favor of some of this theology, at least. I really think much of this objection that the God of the Calvinist is a monster, he's, uh, he's unjust, he's unkind, he's cruel. It, it has the entire paradigm of sin and judgment upside down, because the scandal of the gospel is not that God hell or condemns them for sin. The scandal of the gospel is that he offers grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's the bit that doesn't make sense. It makes all the sense in the world that a righteous God would, would punish sin, that he would exercise wrath against those who deserve it, which is all. The, the strange thing in the story of the Bible is that that just and righteous God chose to exercise that wrath, at least on behalf of some, um, upon his own eternal son, and to offer them what they didn't deserve instead of just giving them what they did. And so for me, that, that story in Luke 13 of the Tower of Siloam and of the, um, the Galileans who, who were murdered in the temple by Pilate, that it, it real, Jesus in that moment, I mean, I, I'm not saying Jesus was a Calvinist. He didn't know who Calvin was. Uh, but, uh, I think in that moment he talks like a Calvinist, he flips the paradigm. Cause you know, it's a very natural, normal human question to go like, man, why do these bad things happen to these good people? The story of the Bible is that God, because he is so compassionate and gracious and kind 
the great question is why do these good things keep happening to these bad people? And that totally shifts the paradigm. Yep. Yeah. Did we miss anything in the comment section? Let's see. So tell well, I, I want to hear uh well, Matt's uh I think threatening to turn off the Wi-Fi at the church um for <laughs> to get back at all the you know, to get back at me on behalf of all the Armenians. But um <laughs> Is Matt an Armenian? No. Well, I was gonna say you, <laughs> you think, do you think do, I I I I think um when it comes to pastoral ministry having a having two pastors on staff that that differ on these types of things can make for a very difficult working relationship. So um that's not to say if Matt changed his mind that he'd get fired. Um yeah. but it does. So So <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The next, next misconception and I'll say this. This might this one might not be a misconception. It might be that this is true. And it's just difficult to swallow. You guys will have to tell me because this is an area where I'm not as well versed in, in uh, Calvinist theology as you guys are. Uh, one of the thing, arguments that I hear leveled very often, and again, I don't know if it's a strong argument, but it has great emotional power, is that if, if the Calvinists are right, the gospel offer is not a genuine offer. That the gospel call is not a genuine call. That basically, you know, God, God is God is playing games. He's pretending to call men to repentance. All right, I'm I'm going to ask for clarification on that. I've I've heard this, but I've heard it brought out different ways. So I want clarification. If Calvinists are right about what? Uh, if they're right about election. Okay. So right so what? So we're right. puppet theology, leveling the charge that. You're oh, still God. responsible for your rejection of God. So it's not like like they might think that we reject the idea that man's responsible. He is responsible. And he's going to necessarily choose based on his nature. Now we, um, you know, Spurgeon would say that we are not in the business to, um, to look and find out who's elect and not elect before we preach the gospel. In fact, he used an analogy. He would say that if he knew, if God said that there was a yellow stripe under a man's coattails in the streets of London, he'd be running all around London looking under men's coattails to see if they had a yellow stripe and preaching the gospel to him. But he doesn't do that. What does he say? In Matthew 28, he calls us to go to all the nations to make di disciples um, and, and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what they expect because I think that they are, you, could level, you could level the same thing against an Arminian in this way. Well, you should be able to just coax someone into believing by giving them a better sales pitch. Bigford, anything to add? Um, give me the question again, because Eric went yeah. on a little bit of a tangent there. I always go on tangents. Okay, so I speak in tangents. So here's the question: If God predestines mm -hmm. some for belief and not others, um, is the gospel offer genuine? Yes, and it it is it is genuine. Here's here's the thing. We have to we have to understand the fullness of what is going on, not just one piece of it. Hmm. And that
question or accusation takes one piece of the puzzle out of context. It assumes that man does not have a will, man does not have a chance, have a, a choice. Uh, when, when in reality, man does. Uh, I think a, a helpful way to look at it is a railroad track. Uh, and th this can work with quite a few different points of theology. Every railroad track has two rails, right? right? One rail is a human's will. The other will, uh, the other rail is God's sovereignty. Both of those go along the track the whole way. That was so much better than the, than the childbirth analogy. That was so far superior. <laughs> um, you should, in fact, I would recommend. So concerned about quoting other people, you know, name dropping and that sort of thing. But um, I would, I would. Eric is usually on something. I don't know if he's referring to like drugs, because <laughs> I assure you, I've I've not done drugs, but um, I am on Pepsi. By the way, the the sponsor of today's episode is is Pepsi. No. Yeah. No, um, I'm sorry, it's not. Thank you for so, proving. Thank you for proving Meredith's point. <laughs> so, uh, I I would recommend to 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 truly understand whether you're Arminian or Reformed, right? So I would say I was even Reformed prior to reading this book, but um, reading J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty yes. of God, um, it's more than just an evangelism book. Um, it is a thorough treatment, I believe, of God's sovereignty in salvation. And it is incredible. It is incredible. So next misconception. Okay. Uh, Calvinists don't think it matters how they live because they're predestined and elected. It's just a matter of whether or not God chose you. This is, this is, I think where people sort of conflate Calvinism with the once saved, always saved theology of many fundamentalist Baptist churches. Well, if you are saved, you're always saved. So I do agree with that sentiment in the sense that you, no one can t pluck you from the father's hand. Quote Jesus. <laughs> so um, to quote Jesus, no one can pluck you from the father's hand. I'm in preparation in first John two. Um, the, your, your staying in the faith until the end of your life is proof that you have, that you've all, that you've been in Christ. Um now, someone might say, well, but all these Calvinists, they like smoking cigars and drinking whiskey and craft beer and um, and all that stuff. Um, That's one of the misconceptions that is true, by the way. That That is largely true. No, not, in, all, not all Calvinists like smoking cigars. Um, so Cigarillos. But we just we just look at the scriptures and say, we'll do what we'll do what God commands. And we will enjoy it. We like God's law is something that has been given to us so that we know what pleases him and we are to be conformed into his image. It our life matters. Holiness matters. Check out um, holiness by JC Ryle. It is a tremendous book. Um, he's a Calvinist, an Anglican minister with a beautiful red beard. Um, he he lays out for there the importance of holiness and piety in the Christian life. We're going to deal with Mike's comment in a minute. First, Bickford, I want to hear your response. I mean, as long as you're predestined, does it really matter how you live? Absolutely it does. 
Now, okay, people complain about us take about looking at uh, Ephesians 2 and elevating it. Well, what does Ephesians 2 10 say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, mm -hmm. which God prepared beforehand, and we should walk in them. Mm. You know, right. we are saved in order that we will then go and live as God has called us to do. Mm. Part so of salvation oh. is that newfound desire to please him. But it's also enjoying him in doing it. That's, that's part of God saving us now. <laughs> we are now able to enjoy him. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Meredith Mer said, well, I didn't know this was a thing. I'm going to go have a sig break. <laughs> so, um, Mike, Mike, Alex's comment, which is, of course, meant to be a joke, but I actually, I have heard this many times. Um, okay, so uh, God says no one can snatch you out of his hands, but you can jump out. And I think a lot of people would point to uh, Hebrews 6, where uh, where he warns against those who have tasted of the things uh, uh, of Christ and have fallen away. So how, how do you guys interpret? Actually, let me let me let me give the, the fuller argument, the longer, okay. argument, which is that there is a bunch of admonition in um, the New Testament to continue in the faith, mm -hmm. persist in the faith, to not fall away. Right. So I, I think people would say, like, well, if if perseverance of the saints it were a true doctrine, why do the New Testament writers, why are they so concerned about people falling away from the faith? So, uh, no one can snatch you from his hand, but you can jump out, right? I would First, I would say I don't think perseverance of the saints is the best way to put it. Hmm. I think preservation of the saints is a much better term. Hmm. Because perseverance of the saints implies that it is up to us to keep ourselves saved. Whereas scripture indicates quite clearly, and I think our own lives indicate, indicate quite clearly, that we won't do that. Hmm. Is, it, is it MacArthur who said, uh, if, if it were up to you to keep your salvation, no one would do it? No. Yeah. <laughs> We'd lose it every day, 10 times a day or well, more. Uh, you know, in... And that admonition in, in Hebrews 6 actually starts in Hebrews 5, and it starts out like this. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I, I'm just going to agree with the author of Hebrews here, but he says why it's hard to explain. He says, since you have become dull of hearing. Um, I think one of the admonitions there is that we can have kind of something made up in our mind and we're going to read it into the text in Hebrews six. Okay. So starting in five, going through six through under the heading of warning against apostasy. This is one of those things that is more challenging to our belief in, in, in reform theology. I agree that it is a challenge. I agree. It's a difficult passage for us to handle, but I also believe that it's something that we look at and go, this is a warning of this is what happens, or this is how to guard against apostasy. Apostasy happens in the sense that people who were seemingly in Christ walk out of the faith. Now, Luke, I mean, I, I'm sure you've met people, I know I have, that seemed like fervent followers of Jesus Christ and then walk away after a time. I honestly believe that they were never really in Christ. What they were in was a movement. They were in a 
um, in a group of people, they belonged to the local church or a, a certain segment of the population. And they went to church and they tried to go through all these things. And then they just kind of came to the realization of like, ah, this thing ain't for me. Now That's now, sad, but now, Eric, I, I don't think that they were ever saved to begin with. Eric, I, I guess you there. It almost sounds like you're saying they went out from us because they were not of us. I mean, that's yeah, kind of sounds like First John two, right? Like, what's that? Uh, um, I forget what verse exactly, but it's in the second half of First John two, and um, yeah, man. I mean, they weren't ever from us. They weren't ever of us, and that's sad. Like, we don't go and boast in that. We go like this is tragic, and we're called to what? We're called to work out our own salvation too. That is, that doesn't mean that we have to earn our salvation. It means. Actually, in the first century, in, if you look in the the uh, epistles, there's the idea of this salvation that um, I want a T-shirt that says apostasy happens. That's no, no, no T-shirts like that. That's not good. Um, but there's there's the idea that salvation isn't just a once and for all event. Salvation is something that we continually are a part of, even up until the day of resurrection, when we fo- when the when salvation is fully consummated. So. We, we, we are saved. There's a sense in which we are saved before the foundation of the world. We are saved at the cross. We are saved. We are being saved and we will be saved in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. Bigford, jump in. I saw you chomping at the bit. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to highlight here. One, Eric, you've only talked about one group of people that this is applicable to. Okay. The other group, and I think this is included in the Hebrews 6 passage. Mm-hmm. It's not just those people who never were Christians and abandoned the faith that they were doing for social reasons or emotional reasons or, or whatever. It's also those people who truly are saved, but have walked away for a time for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. That's why I say you keep reading this in verse six, chapter Hebrews 6, verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I actually think the Hebrews passage is more talking about those people who actually are Christians, but for whatever, a re, for whatever reason have walked away from practicing the faith for a time. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's one of the, them back into. Yeah. It's one of the, it's the goal of church yeah, discipline, isn't it? Those people, if that's the case with those people, then they will be brought back. Yeah. Well, it's the, it's the case with church discipline, right? So the purpose of placing someone under discipline or approaching them with their offense against God is first and foremost to restore them, to bring them back. So when you confront someone with their open sinfulness and they reject that, that is fruit of unbelief. That's not fruit of belief. And you are confronting them in love and kindness. Key there is love and kindness and gentleness. Um, in the hopes that they would come back to the faith. Yeah. So there, there's something that runs through all this kind of a thread that I think really strikes at the heart of, of much of these misconceptions, which is the misconception that sovereignty in some way eliminates human responsibility. Uh, I remember one time I was speaking to someone who was in jail because they had committed a crime. And they said to me, you know, I just know it's the Lord's will that I'm in here. And I, and I remember thinking, yes, because it's the Lord's will to punish evildoers. 
Uh, but I think it is a common misconception that, well, if God's in control, then we can't really be held responsible for the things that we do or the choices that we make. Uh, and that simply is not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible seems to teach is that God is in control, that he is sovereign, and that you are responsible for the choices that you make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Matt brings up a great question. And, and I will say this, Matt. Um, it's a great question. <laughs> what does the author of Hebrews answer? What does the author of Hebrews say in chapter five? These things are difficult to explain. <laughs> yeah, the, it's difficult I, to explain. Yeah. I, I think it's one of those things where we can't answer that question because we don't know the person's heart. Hmm. And there are some people that the answer would be one way, and there are other people the answer would be the other way. Now, if anyone, if anyone in the comment section has any further questions, please chime in. But for these last few minutes, since I have the privilege of co-hosting the show, I'm going to ask some questions that are genuinely my questions. So I, I, I have a question for you guys, because I've heard um, guys like Piper say this. Do you believe that God ordains every blade of grass? Because I, have, I, have, I think if you read scripture, it's difficult to argue that God is not sovereign over salvation. But I mean, how how far do you take this whole sovereignty thing? Is he ordaining every drop of water that falls from the sky? And I mean, how how, how all powerful is this all powerful God you guys proclaim? <laughs> it's not an issue of power; it's an issue of interest, right? Mm-hmm. Is he just interested in the growth of every blade of grass? Is it, absolutely it, yes. Wow, you both say yes. Yeah, I, I I think he is. You can support that biblically. Yes. Um, oh, which psalm is it? There is a psalm that talks about that concept. Um, any line from it? I'll look it up. I'm, I'm trying to come up with it. Well, I mean, Jesus does say that the Father closed the, the yes. flowers. Mm. He which actually, that's quoted from a psalm. So I, I don't like to me that's not all that crazy, um, and I think and I think even a lot of Arminians believe that. I don't mm-hmm. think you have to be a Calvinist to believe that. Um, yeah, Luke, give us a tough question. <laughs> I mean, you guys answered that really quickly, and we're in total agreement. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, Palma Apley says he knows the number of hairs on your head. Yes, and that is fairly unimportant. But the thing is, is that God, I mean, how amazing is that the God of the universe, the God who saves, the the one who has created everything, even cares about the hairs on our head. Now, I'm 33 and I'm starting to lose my hair. I do think it's an important thing um, to know how many hairs are on there. But <laughs> I'm hoping God can do something miraculous and give me more hair. But so there, there's a great quote from a Calvinist. Okay. So I, I wrote down because Eric said we might talk about a particular topic here, which I don't think we're going to get to today, and that's perfectly fine. But it's very relevant to the question you brought up. And Abraham Kuyper said this. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say mine. Boom. Whoa, read that again. Calvinized. 
Calvinized. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful statement. I, I've heard it many times. I didn't know it was Kuiper. I'd never heard that before. Say that. Read that again. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. <laughs> that's so good. What was what was the subject that you weren't sure we were going to get to? Because we have 15 minutes to, to talk about one more well, thing. Can, can we first get to, I want to hear Luke, because Luke does disagree with Calvinism. So I think we have like 10 minutes to convince Luke of one <laughs> uh, uh, on, on one. Yeah, we don't need to get the other topic. Are you what sure? Was the other topic? I forget. I don't remember. Uh, you remember. had said you, you might want to discuss uh, the difference between continental oh. and British reform theology that's right that's right you're right we don't have time to do there that. are different there are different uh flavors so to speak or different streams okay eric doesn't know the difference anyways so i do know a little bit like i think the i think the um british reformed dealt they focused more on salvation issues whereas the continental or dutch reformed focused more on the sovereignty of god in all creation right uh, that's the quote from bob that bob Cop yeah. copeland just gave from rc sprawl that's a good one too if there is not, if there, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Yep. Bob Copeland, R.C. Sproul. So what, Eric? You want to spend the last ten minutes of trying to you. convince me? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what I what I like to tell what I like to tell people, Bickford, is that I'm a four point Calvinist, and you probably already Nobody know. Nobody perfect. Um, <laughs> what? Nobody perfect. <laughs> um but uh for those who might not know so if if we if we treat the doctrines of grace or the five points of calvinism as a relatively accurate summation of of reformed theology i think we've said already today it's not complete or perfect but there's we there's some merit to it um then i i would describe two four of the five points right uh total depravity unconditional election irresistible grace and uh, I, I actually like I like your term preservation of the saints uh, the one that that I have difficulty getting behind is limited atonement and Eric was part of the conversation I had with a group of guys a couple months ago where it became very clear to me the inconsistency and in, and in claiming to believe those four but not not the one that essentially holds them all together. Because I, I think limited atonement, at least in my understanding, is the linchpin of Calvinism. It's, 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 the, it's the thing that holds all the other pieces together. Uh, the, the, the thing that I struggle with Bickford is, and I will tell you, I, I am learning and growing, and I've spent a lot of time listening to various interpretations of what you might call the problem passages with limited atonement, you know, uh, world doesn't necessarily mean all the world. It could mean those out of the world. Uh, all could mean all kinds of men, you know, th th those kinds of hermeneutical discussions. I haven't quite arrived yet, though I I feel like I'm learning. So for me, it, it seems like the it, it's at least possible that Christ died for all, but did not apply the benefits or the effects of that atoning sacrifice to all. So that so for to to give the most succinct definition of limited atonement mm -hmm. is this: the atonement of Jesus Christ 
is sufficient for everyone, efficient for the elect. Exactly. So it's enough for everyone. Right. Only applied to God's people. Thank you for saying in like 20 seconds what I couldn't manage to say in an hour and a half with <laughs> four Calvinists in the room. <laughs> Eric, if you want the absolute best book ever written on this, yes. you can read John Owen. John Owen. The Death of Death uh, in the Death of Christ. Mm. Okay. It's a hard, it's, it's not easy to read. He's, no. He's a, but he, even reading R.C. Sproul's forward to the free version of it mm -hmm. um, is helpful. Yeah. Bigford, is um, is Eric frozen for you too? Um, I think I'm frozen on my end, but you can hear me, right? Yeah. yeah. We can hear you. Don't worry. You just look very somber and serious in the frozen picture. That's okay. I assure you I'm smiling. <laughs> so, um, yeah, man, I, dude. Uh, to me, limited atonement is so central to reformed theology. Not and, and here's the th I forget who said it, but um, everybody limits the atonement. It's just to which extent do you limit it? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that reformed folks, we believe that the atonement is limited to those in whom God has saved, um, in whom He has chosen. Yeah. Uh, so, to me, that I, like I I. I have trouble understanding the, the challenge to that because I think that's quite clear. Hmm. Let me ask you guys a really practical question on this subject. Okay. And I, I want to make something clear. Practical questions should not subvert theology. This is the other thing that I hear anti-Calvinists do all the time is they'll ask a difficult practical question, uh, you know, a pastoral question, which does need to be answered. But then, then they just basically use it to undermine scriptural testimony. So that's not what I'm doing. This is, a, this is a genuine, practical, pastoral question. When you guys present the gospel, do you tell um, people that you, you don't know if they're believers or not, do you tell them God loves them? Because that would be a very un-Calvinist thing to do, wouldn't it? You don't, you don't know if God loves them. Uh, we, we'll know in the end whether or not that was the case. I would be more likely to say God loves sinners like you and like me. Hmm. I'll say God loves them. Really? Yeah. You know Isn't why? Isn't that contradictory? No. You know why? I'll tell you why. They're alive right now. That is a grace of God that is given to them mm -hmm. that they don't deserve. God in an instant could wipe you off the face of this earth. And the very fact that he does not is an expression of his love. There is a peculiar love for God's people that he has redeemed by the blood of his son Jesus and there's another kind of love that he bestows upon all of creation so yes I can easily say to someone God loves you starting to sound a little bit like John Edwards with the spider dangled over the fire <laughs> uh, I haven't read that from Jonathan Edwards so I, I don't I, you've yeah. ever read sinners in the hands of an angry God it's his uh, most famous I, sermon I actually chill chill hold on i read it back in like middle school maybe but i don't remember oh my my one of my high school english teachers literature teachers had us read that and then railed against christians and calvinists i didn't dude, do well in that class dude 
for some reason, that's like required reading in public schools everywhere yeah. for all time. And for many of my classmates, that was their first and only exposure to any sort of Christian theology. And God bless Jonathan Edwards, but he is not a good entry drug. No, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, A.W. Pink is not a good entry into the sovereignty of God. There are uh, sermons of Edwards mm-hmm. that are just absolutely beautiful. And in fact, as I recall, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God was part of a series. Mm-hmm. And most of that series was actually focused more on uh, the heavenly reward and the benefits of salvation. Mm. And this one sermon gets pulled out because the, the people are so focused on trying to show why the Puritans were these horrible, evil, angry people. Oh, Bickford, come on. There, there's no agenda to try to misrepresent the Puritans oh. or Christian doctrine in the public schools. Don't be, don't be such a Alex Jones conspiracy theorist. <laughs> It's true. I had the teacher that was all about that. Now, question, Dickford, do you homeschool your kids? Well, my wife does. Yeah, okay, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I think it's a, I think a lot younger people are, or at least younger Christians seem to be, I don't know the statistics, but seem to be homeschooling more so than the older ones. Well, Bickford, I'm going to take a guess here that you actually, I know this already because we talked about high school earlier. You went to public school. I yes. think that's why a lot of young Christians are homeschooling their kids because we went to public school. Yes. I knew what public school was like, and I've seen what it's become even more so. And, yeah. and look, God, God bless the, uh, the Christian teachers who are, who are there. We're yeah. so glad you're there. Continue to work faithfully. We're not bashing you. We just know what it is that you're up against. Mm-hmm. We, well, Luke, are you sufficiently convinced you're now a Calvinist? You, you know what? I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I am closer to being a Calvinist than I've ever been. Um, I, I, I was closer a year ago than I was two years before that. I was closer a month ago than I was a year ago. And I'm closer right now than I was an hour and 33 minutes ago. So I haven't I've not quite yet arrived. I'm still clinging to my four-point uh, unlimited atonement, but not universalism, uh, contradiction. But uh, I, I'll, I'll say this. Let me say this in closing, then I'll, I'll let Eric have a final word, and I think we should let our guests finish the show. Uh, let me say this. I'm not quite a five-point Calvinist. However, the more I study the Word of God, the more I find the sovereignty of God in all things exalted by just about every biblical author that I've closely studied. Mm. Eric, well, my word. Hey, I took a long time to come to Christ too. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Bigford, on that note, we're gonna we're gonna let you give the last word on today's show. I don't know if I really need to say much more than you just said, Luke. Honestly, and that yeah. that. It hits it right there. Yeah. God's sovereignty and his glory are above all else. And and scripture proclaims it everywhere. How can we miss that? 
Um, Glenn, Glenn says we need to we need to get on a, a public school proponent so that it's not constantly this homeschool bias on here. I, I, will, I will put this out there, and you know, for Glenn, for Meredith, I am not anti-public school. Yeah, I think ultimately that needs to be a decision between every Christian parent. Yep. Hey, okay. I'll just you know. I agree. I agree with you, Bickford. Um, but I, I will just make this because I've had conversation with folks in my church. We have probably half our church homeschools. The other half does not. Um, maybe it's 60, 40, something similar to those lines. But um, I've had conversation with parents that are, that are doing the public school thing and they're having to do it from home because of COVID. And I try to encourage them and tell them um, it don't let this dissuade you from homeschooling. If you've ever thought about it, because what they are making you do through the public school is nowhere near what public what what um, uh, homeschooling looks like. You know, uh, you have your kids essentially sitting at a computer for six to eight hours a day. That is nothing like homeschool, but that is the public school um, doing it at home right now. So um, I just want to encourage families that uh, are, are currently frustrated with what they're doing. That isn't homeschool. Yeah. Then let me let me say this, too. Uh, regarding public school homeschool, I love what Bickford said. That's a choice between, uh, you know, up, that's up to the parents. We're not here to judge the choices those people are making. I will just say this though, I think the reason that not all, not even many, but the reason that some families continue to keep their kids in public schools because they think it's the only viable option. Mm -hmm. um, for the first year and a half of Harper's life, my wife worked full time. And we had childcare. And guess what? Look, I I know plenty of people who grew up in daycare, went to public school, and they they turned out fine. It's not like this is the end all be all thing. What I want to say is this: for the first year and a half of Harper's life, my wife worked full time and we did childcare. Because and it wasn't because we wanted to do that. It was because we felt like, you know, this is the only way we can make it work. We had both gone to college, we had all these loans. Um, my wife comes home from work one day and she was in a, a job that she should have quit six months before, honestly. And she says, um, I quit my job today. And I think she was expecting me to let go, you know, go like why or panic or, and instead in that moment, I had such a sense of relief. I said, good, don't go back. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was amazing within three weeks of that happening. Um, God had provided a second job for me that paid as much working part-time as she had been making full-time. And I'm not saying there's a guarantee that you'll, you'll end up exactly the same way we did. I just know for us, for our family, we wanted um, Lindsay to be home and to raise our children. And we thought we can't make it work. And it worked. One of the problems, Luke, is that we have devalued women to the point to make them think that, that raising children is a bad thing that somehow that's less than anything else. I mean, Dude, the Bible, it's how they get saved. So <laughs> I, I mean, to me, the, the role of the mom is so important in raising the children that, and what we've done in our culture to do value, it really is anti-Christian. It's anti-biblical. It is anti everything that we stand for. Um, my wife is amazing. Um, and I'm sure your wives are too in what they, they have to endure us as pastor husbands. 
um, who probably come home at the end of the day and emotionally drained, right? And like, they, so they have to deal with our own junk and then they have to deal with the kids' junk all day um, and, and, and like have them on track with school and, and there's so much that goes along with it. I mean, they're truly amazing. They are truly, um, I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, we'll, we'll just say this in closing because we've sort of derailed the conversation and gone off another topic. I would just say that um, all of the elect are predestined before the foundation of the world to homeschool their children uh, or, el or else you're an apostate. I think that's how Eric would say it, right? I'm sorry, I was reading a text message. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do anything, can you? How am I supposed to throw him under the bus if he's not even paying attention while I'm yeah. speaking? Yeah. I'm sorry. Do you see what it's like on this show? It was an important. It was an important text. It was about playing hockey. So, um, go ahead. Tell what. What was it? What did you say? No, I'm not repeating it. Um, Mike says not sure most of the arguments against public schools because women are proving a point about what it looks like to Mike. If you're gonna make a joke, it has to make grammatical sense. I have no <laughs> idea what you just said. Uh, you're asking too much of Mike there. <laughs> Mike probably wasn't valedictorian. Uh, <laughs> but you know who was valedictorian? Luke Copeland. Um, <laughs> we valedictorian to give the glory to God. This is what always happens on the show. We brought it to such a nice, neat little ending, and then Eric, Eric takes our nice little ending and he just throws it out the window and picks something new. That's because he wants the attention, not god to have the attention this is true bickford is true. i am only half the show but just for the record from my view you are welcome back to come onto the show and raz eric anytime you please oh, thank you eric i uh, thank get, you getting, getting the raz you know moving past the razzing um hey i just want to note luke pointed this out we how many episodes in are we luke this is our 45th 45th so in five weeks or so we are going to be celebrating our 50th anniversary, our 50th show. So what we want from you is give us ideas of what you'd like us to do to celebrate episode number 50. I don't know what we're going to do, Luke. What are we going to do? I, There's so many ideas. We could try to actually be in the same place for once. We could bring back, a, bring back a bunch of our favorite guests for a little five-minute uh, five let's catch up interviews. Uh, we could have – you know what we could do? is we could do our first uh, live review via video of another thing. What are they called? That was a terrible description. Our oh, first that sounds really video, dumb. Our first reaction, we could react to our own first episode live. That doesn't sound fun at all. That sounds terrible. I forget that you hate to watch or listen to yourself. <laughs> yourself uh, although that's a far better idea than what your wife just said. <laughs> she said everyone shaves their faces that is not going to happen that is not going all right to um i think we need to close the show before we get derailed any further i'll, I'll just let, let me say one more thing to bring it back to calvinism here's the deal um <laughs> if you if you are listening to the show and you have at one point or another maybe you still share some of these misconceptions, the best thing that you can do to understand Calvinism is to study your Bible. The worst thing that you can do is ask a hardcore Arminian. Mm -hmm. This is think? true. 
Ask a Calvinist what he believes, not what an Armenian thinks he believes. Glenn Neal, great idea. Public school versus homeschool conversation number 50. No, no, not a conversation. Uh, it will it will be a test. You, I will bring my kid, and you will bring your kid of equivalent age and grade level. And if mine wins, you got to pull your kids out of public school. Wow, that's pretty cocky. It must be because it must be because you're the valedictorian. If yours wins, it, I will not be putting my kid in public school. So it doesn't go both ways. I'm just saying, you know, that's hey the guys, deal. go as we close up. Go join the banter club at. Um, patreon.com forward slash banter club and um, you can join just for a couple of bucks every month we just recorded a new episode today it should drop tomorrow um, and we talked what did we talk about Luke on today's bonus episode well we were supposed to talk about Harry Potter and instead we ended up talking about everything because that's what happens when Eric and I don't talk to each other for a couple weeks yeah yeah so we it talked about fun. we talked about Tolkien um, uh, um, uh, JK Rowling as well as C.S. Lewis talked about um, enjoying art as a Christian. So, hey, Pat, uh, if you want to be a part of Future, thanks so much for coming on, coming onto the show and checking us out. Um, to make sure you see future discussions, like is it like or um, or join? Is it they like? They can like the page. They yes, can like the like, page. Like the page, Evan Christian Voices, uh, or. You now do have a Christian voices. You should like Bible and banter as well. We have a Facebook page, but we don't do the shows live on there. We post them after the fact. If you want to be part of the live discussion, then you want to make sure that you like the Advent Christian voices, Facebook page. And that way you'll get notified every time we go live. Well, uh, we only went an hour and 45 minutes today, pretty short show, but I feel like, uh, we covered enough of the ground to, to, uh, say that we had the conversation. Bickford, it was a joy to have you. Eric, all silly jokes aside, I missed doing this with you. And uh, above anything else, glory to God who is sovereign over all things, baby. God bless you. Take care. We love you. Even the non-Christian.